0: Sunday, July 24, 2022. Welcome to the 23rd episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. Download the show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining us today is managing editor of Right Wing Watch, a project of people for the American way dedicated to monitoring and exposing the activities and rhetoric of right wing activists and organizations in order to expose their extreme agenda. Kristen Dor, welcome. Thank you very much for uh, being here on The Weekend Show. Great to see you.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, It's our pleasure. Let's uh, talk about the big story of the week, which is, of course, the uh, January 6th committee closing out its set of summer hearings with the most detailed focus yet on the investigation's main target, uh, the former president Donald Trump. So we're going to start having that conversation. We'll also look at the Respect for Marriage Act in just a moment, which uh, passed the House uh, this week as well. But uh, let's first focus on the panel who on Thursday examined Trump's actions on the 6th of January 2021 as hundreds of his supporters broke into the U.S. Capitol, guiding viewers minute by minute through the deadly afternoon to show how long it took the former president to actually call off the rioters. Uh, So they focused on this 187 minutes that day between the end of Trump's speech calling for supporters to march to the Capitol. He said, I'll go with you. But of course, he didn't. And then the video that he released at 17 minutes after four telling the rioters that they were very special and that he loved them, but that they should go home. So this is kind of crucial, isn't it? Kind of 187 minutes, isn't it? Because this is highlighting the the dereliction of duty. Did we already know this, though? I mean, how important was it for the, for the panel to kind of highlight these things?
1: So there's a lot of information here that we did know. Um, we knew that there was seemingly no action from Trump uh, during these 187 minutes. Um, but we didn't know exactly what he was doing. We knew that he was you know, in the dining room of the White House, watching Fox News. So he saw a bunch of what was happening. And we knew about a a couple of the conversations that he had, um, you know, with his White House aides um, and counsel. Um, But we, there was a whole period of time in which there was um, an absence, uh, the the call log didn't show anything. Um, And so they showed that on Thursday's hearing. Um, And you know, I think one of the other things that we, we learned was that he was calling senators and trying to convince them to, um, you know, change their mind or overturn the election results during that time while the Capitol was being attacked, while these senators were, you know, and like, members of Congress were terrified. Um, he was calling them, still trying to get them to do what he wanted them to do. Um and so we learned about that. We learned that he uh, placed a call to uh, Rudy Giuliani. Um, and we know that from Rudy Giuliani's phone records. Um, and I think what we saw more and more was how much effort his White House counsel, his White House aides, everybody put into trying to make him to stop what was happening and to get his um, you know, supporters to go home and leave the Capitol and how much he just didn't want to do that.
0: They, they were exhausted, apparently, the uh, White House staff, weren't they? They said that they, they were they were just fatigued from, you know, a, a day's work. I guess it's because it was the first time they actually did any work. I mean, what, what I think is really interesting here. Do you remember they used to publish daily his, you know, activities, the presidential diary calendar? And there was never anything on it. You know, there was this kind of four hours of executive time in the mornings, which was basically him in the in the private suite just watching television. I mean, this is basically not just the dereliction during those 187 minutes, but you could argue that there was a dereliction during four years. I mean, this is just Trump pretending to be the president. He didn't actually president, did he? Pretended to be the president. And this is a, an example of how he basically was over it. He was he was done. He didn't want to take that oath of office seriously. He didn't want to help anybody. He just wanted to see through this insurrection in his own way.
1: Well, I think the main thing that we saw was that he doesn't believe in democracy. Um, Had he believed in democracy, he would have accepted the presidential results. Um, You know, he wouldn't have spread voter fraud conspiracy theories. Um, He, you know, he would have agreed to the peaceful transfer transfer of power. And what we saw here was that he didn't want a peaceful transfer of power. Um, you know, Trump didn't want to just be president. He he wanted more control than that. And I think that's what we're seeing, um, you know, from this 187 minutes. Um, you know, he would do anything to stay in power. And that's what we saw.
0: But let's just talk about what it means to be Donald Trump being the president, right? I don't think he ever wanted to be the president. The whole kind of the escalator and that whole sequence, you know, the guy looked terrified. I mean, he, had, he didn't think he was going to win uh, in 2016. And, I mean, none of us thought he was going to win in 2016. A couple of people had a good idea, but everybody else was was convinced that he wouldn't. and And so he never really took that job very seriously. But after four years, I guess, of pretending to be the president he kind of liked the idea of being called Mr. President and, and, and you know, getting all of the trappings of the presidency and the motorcade and the fuss and the, and, the, and the aeroplane and stuff. I mean, this is all plays into his childlike ego, right? So I'm thinking about how I'm just trying to think like from an emotional perspective, when you say he doesn't believe in democracy, I don't think he really knows what democracy is. You know, I just don't think he has that capacity to because democracy means having empathy for other people and he doesn't have that you know the guy isn't capable of it so why was he so keen to kind of win again if he didn't really enjoy being the president the first time
1: well i think what he enjoys is power so right. if you enjoy power you know you want to be the most powerful man in the in the world you know why not be the, the president of the united states he doesn't want to do the things that usually come with the presidency but he wants power so I think his goal is to remake the presidency to something that he, you know, he wants, he would enjoy, um, which is, you know, absolute loyalty from those around him and anybody beneath him. And I think that's what we, you know, that's what we're seeing time and time again. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it just honestly just keeps on going back to this idea of wanting power.
0: It's a bit like, you know, he ran it like he ran his family business, which was that he was accountable to nobody right he Absolutely, he yeah. he ran he ran everything he had ideas made decisions on the fly and on a whim he was so obsessed with his own gut instinct that that was enough it didn't require him to read or or have knowledge of a situation it was all instinct, and that that is i mean that's a, an extreme narcissism isn't
1: it yeah I mean, I, and I think a lot of what we've seen over the past four years, and especially during these hearings, is exactly that. Um, he didn't want to listen to his advisors on anything. You saw how much that he fought with the people who were providing him, you know, information to do uh, what they thought was the right thing and, you know, what was legal. And he, you know, he was like, I don't need to listen to my White House can- counsel. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to listen to this guy, Rudy Giuliani, his, his uh, you know his lawyer, personal lawyer, who... Was just giving him exactly what he wanted, and so I think that's what we saw, um, especially during the hearings and what we saw throughout the four years was him basically say, you know, wanting to bring people around him who would only say yes. He wanted yes men. That's what he wanted. He wanted absolute loyalty, and he also didn't want to, you know, give any loyalty in return.
0: Let's just talk about the hearings specifically. Now they've been rather brilliant at being chronological about this evidence, right? And and this is why when they're showing you know, video clips of, of people giving private testimony, it kind of cuts at the end of a sentence and then it shows somebody else saying something. And they're doing that because they're building up a kind of chronological picture of what happened in, in those kind of 48 hours. From your perspective with your day job, what, what are people on the right thinking about this process? Now, how are they digesting this? Because I get a sense that for those people who live in reality... We're not in the cult of Trump. Obviously, we see this as criminality. It's a cut and dry case. It was blatantly obvious. There's multiple uh, people giving evidence. It all corroborates. I mean, this is an open and shut case. But if you're a a right wing um, person, a conservative, a a Trump supporter, a, a moderate Republican, a fiscal conservative, any of these things, let alone a kind of MAGA person. You have a completely different narrative here, don't you?
1: Yeah, and what I would also say is, I don't know if moderate Republican quite exists in the same. You know, what the, I don't even the, know what that is at this point. Yeah, but, they don't
0: exist anymore. They've all because they because they embrace okay. the far right, didn't they? So, yeah,
1: or or they're you know have been outcast by their party. So right. I will say for the um, MAGA Republicans, um, you know, the Trump diehards, loyalists, they're not seeing this. Right wing media is not showing you know, these hearings. Um, You have either right-wing media, when they do mention it or cover it, what they will say is it's a witch hunt. Um, They will call it partisan. Uh, They'll claim that it's, you know, just all full of Democrats, which is not true. There are two Republicans on the committee. Um, And they just try to completely ignore it otherwise. And so we see that time and time again where, you know, right-wing media, the biggest story story of the day uh, throughout the nation is the January 6th hearings, and they're not covering it. They're just not Well, covering because
0: that. they're still talking about Hunter Biden's laptop. That's why. Of
1: course. And, um, so, and I will say that the biggest example of this would probably be Fox News on, um, you know, and they've started covering it a little bit since then. But yeah, the, they, they covered, the covered it on hearing,
0: Thursday, didn't they? Yeah. And then and then they allowed Sean Hannity to go on that night and just basically ridicule the whole thing.
1: Yep. And I will say also on the night, the first night of the first hearing, what they decided to do was that they showed um, Tucker Carlson show, and he went for an hour straight with no commercial breaks. That's right. And that was to make sure his people wouldn't be tempted to go and switch channels to January the January sixth hearing. So I think that's something really notable and something that we've seen time and time again with within right wing media. And so what I will say is that a lot of the um, you know Trump loyalists, Trump diehards, they aren't seeing this, and so they're just regurgitating what they've heard, which is this is witch hunt this is partisan. Democrats will do anything to destroy Donald Trump. And that's that's basically what they're seeing at this point.
0: This hatred towards between the parties, and actually that's unfair because it's not between the parties. I don't believe that Democrats hate Republicans in the same way that Republicans hate Democrats because, you know, Democrats are not indoctrinated to hate Democrat, uh, to hate Republicans, are they? They're not kind of given material, you know, like they're, they're not exposed to propaganda, lying about the right. They're just told what the right are up to, and that's enough for them to dislike them. But there's not this kind of vitriol and this hatred. And I, I'm i very interested in what the long-term effects are of a political party, and let's say it's almost half the country, who who support the, the, the Republican way, being told time and time again that Democrats are evil that Democrats want to take away your freedom and Democrats are are communists and all of these these lies because this is hate speech, and in some countries, even the country where I was born, hate speech is actually illegal you just you 're not allowed to say it on television or even online so what 's going to be the long term effect of right wing followers being told for years time and time again that, that Democrats are are the devil incarnate?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the big thing is that you have you know the far right QAnon conspiracy theory, um, you have the racist great um, great replacement theory, um, you have all these you know conspiracy theories that basically have enveloped the Republican Party, and you also have um, you know this terms of spiritual warfare, you know people saying that this is a fight between good and evil between. Republicans and Democrats. Um, And all of these ideas have really found a home um, in the Republican Party. And I think that's what's really worrisome is that, you know, QAnon, for example, um, used to be a very fringe conspiracy theory um, claiming that, you know, Democrats were um, pedophiles and they're part of a satanic cabal. And now those ideas have basically enveloped you know, a lot, a lot of those ideas are everywhere in the Republican Party, and the Republican Party did not do anything to stop those ideas from taking hold. Um, they said too little, too late when they finally denounced it. Um, I think it was back in you know twenty twenty, but um, you know by that point it was already everywhere, um, and yeah, I I, I think that. On the other side, we don't see as these types of conspiracy theories, we're not seeing things in, in terms of spiritual war, warfare as, you know, the fight against good and evil. It is, um, I think it's honestly between propaganda and truth. So that's where I'm at.
0: Because it, it's, it's it's kind of sad, isn't it, that this whole division is built on a lie. You know, it, it's it's not actually, there's no actual truth to this hatred between the, the left and the right, this kind of refusal to engage. You know, you won't have uh, Republican senators being interviewed by left-leaning or even centre-left news or media organisations. They'll only go on right-wing media. Th- there is a kind of total denial to engage. And and my fear is that we've got this whole, we've got this huge problem, which is much bigger. This is what Liz Cheney said at the end of, of Thursday's hearing. And Adam Kinzinger as well. He actually referred to it as the elephant in the room. And that is the fact that even if Trump is eradicated from this, from this earth, the problem still persists, right? You know, he has, he has galvanized this hatred and he's created a, a, a movement of people that are so, they have, such, they have such anger and they really feel like they know something that Democrats don't. You know, that they've in some some way have the answer that the magic secret to what America's all about. It's it's you know, it's Christianity and it's guns and it's, you know, all the things that they hold dear. But I, I fear that, you know, where what's the what's the solution? Because, you know, I was keen to talk about solutions to this problem. If Trump goes to prison, hypothetically, I mean, I doubt that he will. But I mean, how do we solve this kind of Hatred that's built on a lie.
1: If I knew how to answer that question, you
0: know. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's a big
1: question. <laughs> I wish, I wish I did. Um, oof, I mean, I think one of the things that um, Representative Adam uh, Kinz- Kinzinger, uh spoke about was the fact that we need to have legislation to prevent um, what happened in, uh, you know, on January 6th, um, and you know, in the lead up to January 6th, where you had the Electoral Countout Act, for example. Um, that there was, um, some language that could have been a little bit more clear. And as a result, you had people like Trump lawyer, John Eastman, trying to take advantage of that, um, and trying to overturn the election and pressuring Mike Pence to do so. So I think one of the things that they've mentioned is needing legislation to prevent such things from happening. I don't think that this, um, anger or hatred just disappears overnight, but I think we need to have, um, you know, laws and legislation in place that protect us, and um, and I think you know, the question of having hatred, you know, trying to get rid of this hatred in our country that's that's formed. I think a lot of that, honestly, is just you know, peer to peer conversations, and um, you're talking with people that you trust about, um, you know. The facts and what you're seeing, um, and also not trying to shut somebody down immediately, even if you find their views despicable, because I think having a conversation is very important and maintaining that communication um, is important for democracies to
0: exist. The the, the debate is very binary at the moment, isn't it? You know, there's very little room for nuance.
1: I think part of the problem is we're working with two different sets of facts. And so it's very hard to have those conversations. But it doesn't mean that, you know, just you sh- you shouldn't try. And I think that's where I'm
0: at. I guess these conversations are being had at the dining room table in families. You know, we've heard this happened in England and Europe with Brexit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I fortunately wasn't living there at the time, but I, I heard of a lot of friends and families who had all fallen out with each other over, over this decision mm-hmm. to leave or, or remain. It's happened here. You know, Trump kind of really brought about this this um, separation between families who were because, you know, a lot of people. This is this is what I've been thinking about with these hearings. And I've also been watching what Trump's been posting on Truth Social. And the guy is still like hanging on to every claim that he made about election fraud. He hasn't dropped that ball at all. You know, he's sticking to his story. And that is that, you know, there are people that think that Trump is a hero. That, you know, bringing down this American system, that create causing chaos, as Steve Bannon wanted to do, that, that it actually needs to come down because it's draining the swamp. This is all part of Trump's, you know, great plan is to, you know, screw the rules, you know, the rule of law. It's all, it's all garbage, you know. There's plenty of people around dining room tables in America who still think that Donald Trump is a hero for all of these moves, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, un- unfortunately, there are. Um, and I think in part, it's also because, you know, right-wing media is what they're showing them is um, one story. And that is that Trump is the hero and that, you know, Democrats are after him and it's a witch hunt. Um, and I think the other thing that we've seen is that it's it's more of like the cult of Trump. It's not, it's not just a Republican. It's not the Republican Party. It's Trump's party. Um, and so what we've seen is... You know him requiring this like absolute loyalty, and his people and his supporters giving that, even when you know he doesn't show it in return. Um, and so I think you know there are people who have really fallen into um, this believing Trump is the hero and that the deep state is after him. And you know you can go down any number of conspiracy theory rabbit holes um, to get the exact narrative that you want, but there's always a conspiracy theory to to fit, you know, your belief and i think yeah. that's what we're seeing.
0: Yeah, if you go looking for a conspiracy, you're going to find one. It's a bit like going to look for a doctor that doesn't believe in vaccination for covid, you know, you you yeah. will find one if you if you go looking. Um i want to i want to talk about um the evidence that was presented uh, at the hearing on Thursday. Something that I found particularly interesting is the videotape that is on public record of Kevin McCarthy getting up in Congress and saying this was definitely Trump's fault, and Trump's at fault, it was definitely Trump's fault, and uh, Mitch McConnell doing the same thing in the Senate, it was Trump's fault, it was Trump's fault, and then they all go out and have a little conversation with him at Mar-a-Lago. And then a week later, they're all saying something completely different. I mean, what does he have over these people? You know, and, and, and how is it possible that here in the United States, even if something's on video uh, of, a, of a leader of a political party saying one thing and then changing their mind completely and having a completely different story that the second one over, overwrites the first one? It, it, it just, it, it's just beggars belief to me.
1: I mean, yeah, it's, it's very hypocritical. And, um, but I think, I think, again, this comes back to Trump requiring absolute loyalty among his people. And I think this is people trying to get back in his good graces, you know, in wanting to hold on to power themselves. Um, you know, Speaker McCarthy does, you know, sorry, former Speaker of the house, Kevin McCarthy did not want to lose, um, you know, that position. Hmm. And so I think if you can hang on to that, he has power. He wants that. Um, and that means sticking with Trump at this point because it's Trump's party. And that's a lot of what we're seeing at this moment. You know, uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, he no longer has a relationship with Trump. They're not on speaking terms. But he has chosen not to, you know, he didn't support the um, the, the second impeachment of Trump. Um, and I think in part that was his way of saying, um, I still want to remain in this position of power, and I might not be on speaking terms with the president, but I can at least do this.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it, that like none of this has anything to do with the people that voted these guys into their positions of power, right? You know, it's like they do nothing for the people. They do everything for themselves. And there are no real checks and balances. You know, you can't even You take someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who just spouts this propaganda and just tells these insane lies. And there is no mechanism to discipline her. You know, you can take away her, you know, she can't sit on certain committees and things. But there's no way to kind of discipline people. And there's plenty of them. Paul Gosar's another one. These characters who are, who are so vile, you know, who really are so kind of Anti-humanity—they're just—they're just dangerous, really dangerous. In fact, they are. You could argue that they are the extremists who are, are on the inside. You know, their views are extreme. I mean, if if the Democrats do put in some kind of policy to prevent this type of thing from happening again. Will Republicans not just scream, well, the, you know, this is a fascist move. You're trying to silence us, taking away our freedom of speech. Uh, it's it's going to make Democrats look bad if they legislate against this type of behavior, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, the, our First Amendment is freedom of speech. So I think, unfortunately, it means that people have the right to say terrible things. Um, now, when it comes to threats and, you know, there's there's. Where does it begin and stop is another question. Um, And what we've seen with Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, with representative Paul Gozar, we've seen a lot of these extremist connections, um, where they're palling around with white nationalists, um, like white nationalist Nick Fuentes, um, and the white nationalist America First movement. Um, And so there's, and you know, also saying anti Semitic things, there's, there's a number of different um, issues there. And so we do need to find ways to legislate it. I don't think that, you know, tackling, you know, trying to legislate the freedom, our First Amendment, the freedom of speech is probably going to be something um, that is politically possible.
0: I mean, they've done it in Europe, but in the UK where I'm from, you know, hate speech is defined separately mm-hmm. from free speech. And and so, you know, it is possible to, to separate the two. But the problem is because so, I, I try and expose myself to as much right wing propaganda as possible. You know, I, I, I want to know what's happening. Uh, in, in, yeah. <laughs> do you, yeah. I want to kind of cross over to the to the other side. And and I speak as a pro-democracy person. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a Democrat. I don't get to vote mm-hmm. in, in the US, but I, I fundamentally believe in in the democratic right to vote and to and to protest and equal rights and and everything that goes with it. In America you'd call me a progressive in England you'd call me normal it's just the way it is but i from what i see there is this ability that they have on the on the right wing media to spin what we would consider to be you know Designating hate speech from from free speech and saying, "Well, you're taking away our right to free speech," because what they want when they say that they want free speech is the right to be racist, the right to be misogynistic, the right to be um, uh, aggressive and and violent in their with their words.
1: Absolutely, is
0: that what they're looking for ultimately? So just I, that. Freedom? I think
1: a a great example um, would be Marjorie Taylor Greene. Recently, went on a show and basically said. I spoke at this white nationalist conference back in, in February. Um, and you know, the reason why I spoke, I'm going to continue to defend this is because I don't think anybody should be canceled. What she's saying there is I do not denounce bigotry. Um, and I support these people. Um, and so I think oftentimes that is what they're saying, but they keep on coming back to this idea of we don't want anybody to be canceled because nobody should be canceled for their speech. And I think that's, very different than there should be you know you can you might be able to say under the first amendment a number of different things that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for what you say that doesn't mean that you might not lose your job if you're you know a racist um or misogynist and say all these you know gross things um and i think there is this you know just reaction among some of these right-wing and far-right people who want to be able to say racist and you know terrible, uh, despicable things and just get away with it. And I think that's where, um, you know, we've unfortunately seen more of the Republican Party move. Um, and I, I mean, the one thing I will also say is that, in you know, in the United States, we already have a hard time prosecuting hate crimes. Um, and so I think, you know, we we manage have done, we've managed to do a little bit of it, but it's been very difficult. Well, that's because so they're I,
0: committed by the police.
1: <laughs> I mean.
0: <laughs> right? It's kind of difficult. <laughs>
1: it depends yeah it depends which ones we're talking about yeah, but um, yeah. yeah no and i i think that there is a difference between hate speech um you know and just normal freedom of speech but i well, think it requires a, you know, a a moral
0: yeah. compass doesn't it you know the, the 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 decider between what is free and what is hate requires you to have morality and and you know there's been so much written about the uncivilized nature of the United States compared to other, other countries in the world. In fact, most other countries in the world. And, and in order to be a civilized society, you need to have a, a benchmark for civility.
1: I mean, it would, be, it would be great if we could legislate a benchmark for civility. But yeah, I think one of the things I also worry about is oftentimes these laws are then applied in the opposite direction. So when it comes to hate crimes you know, there have been, um, you know, black extremists who have been, um, you know, it'll only get prosecuted in that direction, and it won't get prosecuted in the opposite direction. Um, and I think we could also see that, you know, when it comes to trying to legislate hate speech, could easily say, oh, you said all, you know, Republicans are terrible, you know, you could do something like that. So I think, Yeah, I think that's one of the difficulties that we end up having when, um, because you have to remember that each of these, you know, any way that we legislate things um, could go in the opposite direction.
0: It's difficult, isn't it, when the president of the United States is the one spouting the hate speech. You know, it's like normally the buck stops at a certain level. And yet when it's gone to the very top, to the commander in chief, when he's the one who is spewing this this stuff that gives license to everybody to do it. And, and there what I mean, I, I've only, I actually moved to the US a couple of weeks before Trump was inaugurated. So I don't have much experience of a pre-Trump America as a, as a resident. But I, I do, from talking to people, I do recognize that there is a difference between Trump's America in terms of people feeling that they have license to say what the heck they like, because he did, because the guy at the top did. And, to ban Muslims in the first week of your presidency from entering America. I mean, that sets a benchmark for for racism and, and, and bigotry, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember what was it? And I think it was the beginning of 2017 when Representative Steve King made some comments about white nationalism, saying, since when has white nationalism become a bad word? Right. And he ended up actually, you know, he got kicked off of all of his um, committee assignments, And he, you know, he ended up um, get like, you know, getting kicked out of Congress, like he lost again. So that was, you know, in the first, you know, I think that was very early into Trump's presidency. Mm. Now you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gozar, you have others who are, you know, peddling the great replacement theory, Mm. the racist great replacement theory. Um, And these, you know, racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories And maybe they get, you know, a slap on the wrist. But because they still raise money for the Republican Party, they are not, you know, punished really by Republican leadership. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, also, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene is adored by Trump. So. How much wrong can she actually do? So everything goes
0: back to money. Everything goes back to loyalty. It really is like a kind of mob environment, isn't it? And in fact, there was a a great moment in the hearing on Thursday Mm -hmm. where they played that clip of of Donald Trump Jr. saying something about going to the mattresses. Do you remember that? And and they said, well, what do you mean by mattresses? And he said, it's a godfather phrase. It's literally a line from a mob movie. And, you know, all of our worst fears about Trump being a mob boss and operating, you know, the way he doesn't commit to anything is very much using the the language of the mob boss where, you know, you can plead ignorance because you didn't actually say it, but you inferred it. And then with his son referring to the mattresses, I was like, wow, like they actually think that they're a mob, you know, that that is their culture.
1: Well, and I think an interesting thing is that um, Donald Trump's former uh, fixer, Michael Cohen, has said that Trump speaks in mob speak. Yeah. You know, he'll he'll insinuate certain things without actually saying it. And that's how he protects himself. And, you know, these these are guys who, um, you know, the whole entire business is in New York and uh, New York City and, you know, New Jersey. And they're really leaning into the the mob <laughs> speak and just yeah. I I almost idolizing it, you know.
0: Um, let's just uh, talk more specifically about the uh, the, the hearing and, uh, you know, your feeling watching it. Because this is the, I think this was the eighth hearing, this is the last of the season, you know, season one, ending here in the summer. There'll be more, potentially more public hearings in September. I, I know that they want to get this wrapped up before the midterms, don't they? Because there is the fear that if they lose control of the House or both houses, that then this whole investigation will just get shut down by Republicans and they'll deny that it ever existed in the first place. Um, How do you feel about the way that this um, final hearing of the season went? Do you you feel like, because, you know, focusing in on this 187 minutes and and Trump's dereliction of duty as the commander-in-chief was a very compelling way to close out this season, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think what they did a really great job of is showing all the different ways that Trump tried to overturn the election and those around him. And then they showed when the violence actually did happen. What did Trump do? He allowed it to happen. And you know, there was 187 minutes from his speech at the Ellipse when that ended to when he finally made the Rose Garden video and you know published that and sent that out. And What did he do? He sent out a few tweets that almost fanned the flames, you know, and I think that's actually, you know, going back to the tweet about Mike Pence that was sent around 2 I want to say two o'clock, 224, when he said, you know, Mike Pence didn't, you know, didn't have the courage to do what was right. Immediately after that, you had people reading that tweet and saying, "Hang Mike Pence, Pence betrayed us. We need to do X, Y, and Z. That fired up the crowd. And what we saw, too, was that, you know, right-wing extremists, um, they saw Trump's words as gospel. And, you know, there was the so-called Stop the, uh, the Steel" leader, uh, Ali Alexander. You know, he sent a text message. Trump knows exactly what he's doing when he, with his words, you know, with his rhetoric. He knows exactly what would happen. Um, and so that's, that's what we ended up seeing is he essentially poured gasoline on the fire. And there was one excerpt to um, it was an Oath Keeper uh, communication between um, this extremist group called the Oath Keepers. And one of the tweets that Trump had sent out was saying, you know, respect the Capitol Police. They're on our side. What they what the Oath Keepers saw through that was he only mentioned the Capitol Police. He didn't say anything about members of Congress. Members of Congress are fair game. And, you know, I think that's the really alarming thing is that, you know, he knew exactly what he was doing with his tweets when when he decided not to tell them to go home. And he knew the violence was happening. He was seeing it live on Fox News. And he chose to do nothing, even though all of his advisors, his family was asking him to act. He chose to just allow the violence to happen. And the last thing I'll just say is Trump never made a single call to law enforcement or the Pentagon. And so the only way that that actually, you know, they got more backup, the Capitol Police, was that Pence actually made the call. And, you know, I I don't know how you can be president when you can't protect your former, you know, your vice president in Congress. So. Yeah, I mean, I I think the hearing did a really good job of laying that information out.
0: I'm thrilled to announce that this show is sponsored by BetterHelp, an online therapy service which will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. Now, I am a huge advocate of therapy and psychotherapy and talking therapy where you work with somebody who is trained and they are able to listen, but not just listen and not direct you. They can listen and just nudge you so that you can draw some new conclusions or you can have a different and more positive perspective on your own life. So if you are somebody who's thought about doing this before and has never really gotten round to it, or maybe you can't afford to go see a therapist in person, well, BetterHelp could actually be the solution for you. It's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, it's professional therapy done securely online, available to people worldwide. You can log on to your account anytime, you can send a message to your therapist, you can even schedule a weekly video or phone sessions. You don't even have to be on camera if you don't want to. It takes a few goes to find the right therapist for you sometimes. Uh, When I went on to BetterHelp, I had to fill out an online questionnaire, just took a few minutes talking about my feelings and the things that I wanted to work on, the things I wanted to change. It's actually more affordable than traditional online therapy and financial aid is available. So you can go to the website, you can see testimonials from people that have also done it. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're now recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. And guess what? They have a special offer for you as a viewer or listener to The Weekend Show. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash weekend show. That's 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp dot com slash weekend show. I'm back with the managing editor of Right Wing Watch, Kristen Dore. Uh Kristen, we are reflecting on the January 6 hearing. Uh, some of the video clips that they played in were completely fascinating. This was like a real insight into how Trump uh, communicates and connects with the people that work around him. And we certainly saw some very aggressive moments where he lost his temper you know he just kind of went went a bit nuts and we've heard of this a lot haven't we over the years from some people that have kind of blown the whistle about living uh, not living but working a, a, around Trump and that is that he really does present two characters there's the public face who like doesn't swear and is you know relatively comedic and then behind the scenes he is a very angry, unhappy and, and aggressive man. We saw some of this in the outtakes to the recording of the video that he gave the next day because, of course, the the Rose Garden video that he made, that was like a kind of one take thing that he kind of did off the cuff and it was very unhelpful. But it did mean that, you know, that was like the beginning of the end of the violence. The next day and he had time to think about it, he kind of sat with Ivanka and his closest aides and they tried to make a video time and time again, by the looks of it, that tried to rewrite history in a way
1: yeah and the one thing i will say also about the rose garden video is that he didn't agree to make that video until it was apparent that the coup had failed until it right. was apparent that other law enforcement had already gone on the scene and that you know he had you know it, it had failed so that's the one thing I So will he, say. he
0: held out for as long as possible he because as as
1: possible.
0: you know he, there were various ways to establish this coup and and one of them, and the final act, I guess, was the violence at the Capitol, because all of the legal effort has failed. Pence doing the dirty work had failed. Giuliani making the phone calls had failed. All of this, all of this stuff that he had, you know, these new the, the, these kind of uh, fake legisl legislatures, all 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 fell by the wayside. And the last thing that was left was to send in the mob.
1: Yep. And yeah. And he you know, he was really, really not wanting to send that video to say, go home. And that's why he also said, you know, we love you. He, he made sure to tell his, you know, his supporters that they were par- patriots and that he loved them.
0: And they're very um, special.
1: And that they're very special. Exactly. Yeah. And that the election was stolen. And so I think,
0: right, he reminded people of the crime, <laughs> the, the yes. crime that's at the heart of all of this. It's not like he changed his story. All of a sudden, he stuck, stuck with it. And, 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 Pushed home this election fraud line.
1: Yep. And even the next day. So he made um, another speech. And the only reason why he ended up making this speech um, was because, you know, his cabinet had basically threatened the 25th Amendment to remove him from office. So that's the only reason why he made the second speech. And during that, he there's a number of outtakes um, and he did not want to say the election was over. And he, you could tell he was furious when he was doing these outtakes. And he didn't want to say the election was over. Uh, He just, you know, said that Congress had certified the results, but he refused to say that the election was over, which is one of the reasons, you know, he's still to this day, pushing voter fraud conspiracy theories, saying that the election was stolen from him. Um, So yeah, he, he absolutely never changed his story.
0: Let's talk about autocracy and fascism, because, you know, these are words that uh, Americans don't really like to refer to. It's almost like it doesn't happen in America. You know, it might happen in the Middle East or it might happen in far off places that we don't visit, or as Trump would describe, shithole countries, maybe. But I, I, I fear that, you know, fascism is here. It's already here. He 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 brought this about. We're we're now seeing, you know, Nazi rallies. There was there was um, Charlottesville, but there was one in Florida recently that Ron DeSantis refused to denounce. This is um, an increasing problem in the in the U.S., isn't it? This kind of um, a gathering of of all far right groups: the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, which are the militia groups, and then you've got these you know, kind of Christian nationalists and, and all of these, what we were used to regard as extreme, have actually become the mainstream under under Donald Trump's leadership. Um, why, why is that, do you think? Why, why is it a case that what we used to, you know, the, maybe the, the, the benchmark for what is extreme seems to have become diluted in some way?
1: Well, I remember when I started working at Right Wing Watch and the people that we covered were considered French and now they have more and more access to power. Um, and I mean, I think what we've seen um, is that Trump's most loyal supporters are these extreme factions. Um, you know, I think even, you know, there's a number of uh, leaders of the evangelical church, conservative evangelicals, who um, came forward and said, We will support you if you get, um, you know, support, if you dominate three or however many pro-choice judges that you are sorry, anti-choice judges as you can. And he kept that promise. And so there are a number of people who saw Trump as their vehicle for their agenda. And so it wasn't just the religious right um, or the Christian right. It was also you know, white nationalists. Um, you know, it was these extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Um, and they saw Trump as their vehicle, and so they have become his most loyal supporters as a result.
0: And this has now moved outside of these kind of fringe meetings into, like, I mean, evangelical Christianity. You know, there are these weekend meetings where the the, the pastor is spewing all of Trump's stuff as well. You know, where. The Bible teachings now have become interwoven with this hate speech. And so it's all kind of becoming one language, which, as we were saying earlier, it's very dangerous, isn't it? You know, where you used to look to your, you know, the priest or whoever it was that was like the head of the religious community as somebody who stayed out of politics. And now politics is inside the church.
1: So there's a big move um, on the Christian right to get politics in the church, you know, or, or I should say, get church into politics more so. Right. Um, And, you know, there's a number of people who don't believe in the separation of church and state. You know, there are people who want to impose their right wing version of Christianity on the entire country. And, you know, Trump is their guy. Um, They think that they can get closer and closer to that with Trump. Um, And, So you have you have these Christian nationalists, you have people who, you know, the person that comes to mind again is white nationalist Nick Fuentes, who is also a Christian nationalist, who is also a misogynist. Um, And you have this blended ideology that's starting to form um, that is, you know, just it's a super right wing version of Christianity, believing that that should be the law of the land um, and that white people need to be in control. And so I think we're seeing more and more of that. And you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, uh, Arizona State Representative Wendy Rogers, who are fueling this by showing, giving their support by attending, um, you know, these white nationalist conferences, by holding up these people as just you know young Christian men. Um, and there's just really an absence of um, denunciation of such, you know, bigotry.
0: And they managed to turn it, don't they? Because, you know, anybody who knows anything about the Second World War understands the threat of fascism and, and you know, how na- Nazi Germany and the Nazis. You know, I think a lot of people can't differentiate between Nazis and, ger- and regular Germans. And I think it's very important to kind of understand history and for us in the UK, you know, we have visual representations of the threat of fascism everywhere because there are still bomb sites from, from where we were attacked from the air. And we don't have that in the United States. There are, you know, there, there are very few, there's, there's obviously there's memorials to the Second World War and, and there was huge loss of life, but it didn't happen on the mainland. And so I do think there is a different understanding of the threat of fascism. Um, There were some very interesting tweets on um, Friday from, uh, uh, I think it's the historian, Michael uh, Beschloss, who said, uh, I'll I'll just read four tweets he put back to back. Authoritarians incite violence and then demand dictatorial power to enforce law and order. Uh, See modern Europe and the history of. Looks increasingly as if this was Trump's game plan from January 6th. Uh, how many times did we hear in public Trump boasting about all of the emergency powers a president has, starting with martial law, that he said he couldn't talk about? And then he said, how many times did Trump joke in public about remaining president beyond two terms? And then finally, he said the January 6th attack and Trump's role in it was fully foreshadowed by the previous six years. Contempt for democracy, fascination with violence and how to exploit it, eagerness to grab authoritarian power. He told us in public almost every day who he was and what he wanted. That's um, from Michael Beschloss, a noted presidential historian who was warning about the corrosive effects of the January 6th insurrection and urging Americans not to get complacent about the significance of the attack. Um for those of us who've been using the F word, the, the fascism word, for, for a few years now, do you think Americans are really starting to realize that that fascism, it's not the threat of fascism, that it's already here? As long as Trump is out of jail, there is a, a threat of fascism from this author- authoritarian.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot more people who are aware of this and... I think there are a lot more people who are starting to see this rhetoric outside of you know these really fringe spaces online um it has moved into the public we saw this you know with january 6th we've seen this with the um proud boys you know going to um different um you know pro-choice protests and um you know protests for reproductive freedoms and um you know LGBTQ parades and you see them basically trying to, you know, go in there, disrupt them. Um there's been violence at a few. And so like I what we keep on seeing is that this has moved from these fringe spaces online and into the public and we're even seeing this with um you know, there's there's rhetoric out there about um LGBTQ people and being pedophiles and it has just pr- proliferated um in you know, so quickly. And so I think more and more we're seeing these really um, dangerous and upsetting rhetoric. And I think those who believe that this rhetoric is upsetting, um, you know, have are, are much more um, concerned about fascism here in the United States. Um, and I think, you know, what we did see with Trump, too, is that he wanted to create chaos. You know, he wanted to create chaos. Um, and then, you know, he wanted to just be able to lay down, you know, say, we need law and order, I'm going to have to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and there was a number of people who supported him and you know, wanted him to declare martial law, invoke the Insurrection Act. Um, and so, I mean, I, we, we were, you know, I think we were too close, way too close to, uh, to that for comfort.
0: The separation of church and state we talked about a little bit earlier, that's already null and void, isn't it, with the overturning of Roe? Because that that is a, a religious opinion that has been ratified in the Supreme Court. So there is no separation of church and state anymore I will in say,
1: the say I will say it's not null and void, but it's not looking good. Um, and Why think- do you
0: say that, though? Because I'm very—and I want to press you because— you know, I I I feel like, I, you know, I, this is what I love about America. It's this ability to say, well, it wouldn't happen here. It's happened. There is no separation yes. of church and state. So tell me why you say it's not quite happened yet when, when Roe's been overturned.
1: I mean, with Roe, we're in an unfortunate spot right now. <laughs> um, so you would say so like, No, I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. I would say that, I mean, yes, I, I agree with you in your assessment about Roe. Um but there are still certain protections um, that, you know, we're, we're not talking about the Bible, like, you know, reading the Bible in school. Um, we're not, we do not have, it has not been completely dismantled. It's there a bit. And so I think what we need to do is make sure that we're protecting those, you know, we, we need to reinforce the separation of church and state. And a lot of that is through the courts. And right now we are in a bad place because there are a number of Supreme Court justices who... Um, you know, are very conservative Christians who want to impose, you know, their views, um, and that's what we saw with Roe. And but you know, we haven't seen that yet with contraception. We haven't seen that yet with. Um, but isn't isn't it, Roe the biggest of
0: these? Isn't you know because, and 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 this is why I'm I'm so interested because it's done. You know that it's it's done. This this decision has been taken. And yeah sure you could travel to California and get an abortion but you know that is not an option for so many people and that's why this decision is going to affect the poorest people the most and invariably that will also encompass black and brown people and there'll be fewer provisions for them in certainly in 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 republican run states Is it optimism that you're referring to where you're like oh it's not a done deal I think, yet because well,
1: I think I have are a little. You just th-
0: naturally optimistic, or are you in denial?
1: Well, I don't know. I've been covering right extremism for too long to to be naturally <laughs> optimistic. Um, I would say we're it's in the process of, of being dismantled, but I would not say that it's completely dismantled. So I don't think that that's necessarily optimistic, <laughs> but I do think that there, um, you know, there are ways that we can try to protect the separation of church and state and try to make sure that na- Christian nationalists don't gain, gain g- ground. And I think we need to do those things. Um,
0: even though there, there is, you know, a, a whole bunch of them on the Supreme Court. Because, I mean, this brings no, us on yes. to this, this next conversation about what Democrats can do to, to protect. Because it was, of course, Clarence Thomas who suggested that, you know, other rights like same-sex marriage could be considered next. And even interracial marriage, which would void his own wedding. But um, let's just talk for a second about the Respect for Marriage Act. This is a a bill that that passed the House easily, actually, establishing uh, federal protections for same-sex marriage. It was passed on Tuesday. 47 Republicans voted in favour of the bill, uh, a bipartisan uh, accomplishment that would have been unimaginable just a few years ago, they're saying. Well, It passed so smoothly and quickly that it, it seemed to catch senators, including ones in Democratic leadership, off guard. They now face the task of keeping up the momentum and holding a vote of their own. Even doing so throws a wrench in their already packed legislative calendar. So, this repeals the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, which previously defined a marriage as a legal union between a man and a woman, and it would guarantee recognition of same sex marriages and interracial marriages under federal law. I mean, this is a wonderful, it's, it's a its a—it's a wonderful um, concept, but this is going to crash and burn in the Senate, isn't it? It
1: faces an uncertain future in the Senate. Yeah, it's, I mean... There
0: goes your optimism again, Christa. yeah I love it.
1: I mean, it could crash and burn, but I think it's important to put people on um, and, and force them to show where they stand on this issue. So, you know, I think what we saw was that there was only forty-seven Republicans who supported um, this act, and you know, you saw exactly who did not support it. And I think we're going to see the same thing in, in the Senate. We're going to we're going to get a list of people who do not support same-sex marriage and also interracial marriage, because otherwise, they would sign this um, or they would vote. That suggests
0: this. there's like 200, 200 lawmakers who who hate gay people.
1: Well, I mean. There are a number of people who don't believe that gay people should have the right to be married, which is shocking. And I think it was really important to for also for Democrats to try to do something. I think, you know, what we what they didn't do with Roe was that they didn't, you know, pass legislation protecting a woman's right to choice. Um, And we, we didn't see the effort for that. And so... Well,
0: why do you think they did, didn't do that? I mean, why not do that? Because they thought it that, was
1: safe. They thought... But what I, about
0: the day that it was leaked? You know, what well, the day that that, that draft um, uh, legislation was leaked from the Supreme Court, was that not the day to, to pass this legislation? Why did they wait till till it became official?
1: I mean, that's a great point. Why didn't they? I think, you know, I, uh, I don't know. But they. I think it, this is another, you know... Democrats need to need to do more to protect people's rights, um, and you know whoever those Republicans are who maybe are not as, you know, bigoted as some of the other ones. So um, no, there needs to be more, um, and I but I do think it's very important that this vote was done and that we see where people stand um, and where legislators stand.
0: I want to ask you a couple of questions about demographics because I'm really interested about with your with your experience with Right Wing Watch which I find increasingly difficult to say. Um, there is a there is a feeling that it's split 50-50 just because of the way that the election results kind of went. You know, I mean it wasn't close with the popular vote with, with Trump he, he lost by 7 million, but ultimately in terms of the electoral college, you know, it was it was relatively even um how what percentage of republicans in your experience are buying in to the big lie you know this whole uh, trump movement who who buy into this i mean is there nuance you know would uh, are some of them pro-life and others not i mean or should we be putting all republicans into one camp you know and, and if we had to try to reach out to Republicans, to communicate that Democrats are not bad. They're not trying to take away your freedom. They're not trying to take away all your guns, just the ones that fire a gazillion bullets in a few seconds. Do, do you think that it's possible to convert anybody, you know, bring them back from the dark side? Um, because, you know, you must come up against this all the time. So, so how many Americans really are as, as sold down the Trump River as, as, we, as we, we fear?
1: You know, I, I don't think I can give a percentage. I think it's way too many. Um, but there are glimmers of hope when you have people like, you know, I'm going to take Liz Cheney as an example. Liz Cheney, who defended Trump in the first impeachment and is now the vice chair of, um, you know, of the January 6th um, committee. And so I think I think that's notable. And I think I do know other Republicans who were Trump loyalists, and they have walked away. Um, it's taken them too long, I will say, but there is hope there are people who are walking away from the party. Um, and I wouldn't say that everybody is probably in the same bucket. I think there are a number of people who do believe that you know, the 2020 election, those results are fair, the stolen election claims are kind of out there. Who could believe that? But Trump is their guy for a number of different reasons. Um, Whether that is, you know, they don't believe in a woman's right to choice, Um, whether it is they don't believe in, you know, gay people's right to get married, Um, whether it is that they feel that, you know, they're white and they're losing their place in the world and they want white people to be in power and to maintain that power. Um, I do think that there are other reasons why people are supporting him. Um, But. I don't think that at the end of the day, you know, the stolen election conspiracy theories that he's been pushing really matter to him when they, you know, Trump supports them in other ways.
0: It's it's kind of convenient, isn't it? Because I personally believe it all comes back to racism. I, I think that racism is at the heart of a lot of this. And, you know, this this uh, white replacement theory or the great replacement theory or whatever you might call it. I mean, it's a serious thing. It might not be um people might not think of it in those terms but they do feel it in terms of becoming a minority now statistically white people still have the majority in a significant way in the united states and um, but they're being told otherwise by the right wing media and and so this all contributes to the division and, and and the hatred but i i suppose when you have a a president who is so outward with his Views because he doesn't have an inner monologue. Donald Trump does he? I mean, he he really says everything out loud. He gives away all the clues. He he's not a because he doesn't have a great intellect, so he can't.
1: Except it's in mob speak, so yeah. That it's in thing. mob speak, so it's all <laughs> it's
0: all inferred. You know, stand back and stand by, or even the the white power symbol, which he probably doesn't even know is a W and a P, but to the people that that care, that is a a smoke signal for their for their involvement. So, really, my, my question is about, you know, where we go f- forward from here. You know, I personally think that Donald Trump will run again for, for the presidency because he thinks it will protect him from prosecution and he's running out of options. So, And I, and I have no doubt that the uh, Republican Party will rally around him. I, I cannot see uh, an alternative candidate that is going to, you know, garner as much interest and support as him. And And does this play into the fact that, you know, America is fundamentally a racist country. It just, you know, it really is at the heart of so many things that it it will allow a, a racist autocrat demagogue to be the leader because it me- means that white people win power.
1: I will say, you know, I think racism is everywhere. So, you know, not just the United States, but I think the United States has a, you know, a history of it, you know, white supremacy—that's what this country was built upon—and um, it's not like that disappears overnight. That has to be worked. You know, people have to work to beat back white supremacy because that's built into some of our foundations as a country. Um, and so, I think in part, you know, what Trump and others have done is that they've t- tapped into some of these feelings that were just underneath the surface—that were—it's
0: fear, isn't it? In part,
1: yes, because fear of losing their place in society, Um, you know, fear of losing power of, you know, um, you know, you used to be white men who were in charge and now what's happening? Um, And so I think they're they're tapping into this fear and they, you know, it used to be that you couldn't say these things without, you know, it being, you know, disrespectful. Like it was, you know, nobody really wanted to touch that. Nobody didn't really want to talk to those people, to the point of which now people are saying this out in the open and saying, I'm not racist. This is just the way things are. Yeah. and yeah.
0: It's, it, it's, it's very sad in a way because, you know, this is all about power, isn't it? Because you could argue that the abortion debate is also about power. You know, it's about men controlling women. And you could argue that the same sex uh, fight there and interracial marriage, this is all about power. You know, they're not even that, interested in the specifics because, you know, arguably there's going to be millions of white Christian nationalist women who will need to access abortion and probably have done at some point and will do it secretly or they won't speak about it. Or, you know, they talk about homosexuality like it's some alien thing. And yet the people that are talking about it in this way are secret homosexuals and are having same-sex affairs privately. There's this hypocrisy. And, and so whenever I see somebody, it's a bit like the Catholic Church, isn't it? You know, trying to be the kind of bastion of all that is good. And yet there was this decades and decades of abuse going on behind the scenes. I mean, do you think it's the same with these, you know, far-right nationalists? They, you know, they all have the same vices as you and I, they, but they just have a different public narrative.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, in part, you know, it's the ideology that they're they're around. So, you know, maybe that they don't think that women should you know get an abortion, but they're suddenly find themselves in that situation and they think, well, I'm going to get one. But I still don't think that anybody else should or, you know, that
0: God will forgive them because, of course, forgiveness is built into the faith in such a way that, well, it doesn't really matter if I engage in it because, you know, I am absolved through my prayer.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, I think that there are some, you know, really right wing anti LGBTQ forces who believe, you know, say that it's like, terrible and immoral, and yet they engage in it as well. And it's one of those things where it's, you know, are you hating yourself? Like, I I don't understand what's going on here. But yeah, I, it's, it's definitely, um, I think there is a level of I want to be able to do this when I should do it, but I want to control everybody else's lives and their so, you know, so-called morality.
0: Isn't it interesting to you that we rarely have these conversations in in terms of like asking what is the mindset of the people who are campaigning against abortion when they might need to access abortion services? I mean, it, it just seems to be taken for granted that, you know, that, 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 that white, white Christians are can do no bad, that they, they lead these perfect lives. But it's not a reality, and, and no one seems to be opening up that debate.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not a reality. You're right. Um... And what i will say you know one of the things that comes to mind is you know there was a um, pastor um, in north carolina who basically um, is all against reproductive choice and it came out that he and his wife had had an abortion and he said well you know what i've you know made my peace with god and um you know i really regret that and because i've had this experience I don't think anybody else should have this experience. Right. And, yeah, yeah it's- it's,
0: it's, all, it's all justified in, in you know, it's, it's all perspective and there's a justification somewhere. And if you can blame it on the man upstairs, then I guess you are, you know, you, you don't take responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Uh, thank you so much for the chat today. I, I really appreciate your, your thoughts and your insight. And um, hopefully we'll chat again together sometime. Uh, That's uh, Kristen Dorr. I'm Anthony Davis. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5-Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning so you can listen while you make your coffee. And leave an iTunes review. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch.